But we're into 2 Samuel, starting that today. Let me give you a bit of a recap before I read our passage. Um, 1 Samuel ends with David off fighting the Amalekites in the south of Israel. He has gone away because Saul wants nothing to do with him. So he's down there fighting. And while he's doing that, Saul and Jonathan and the Israelite army has been fighting on Mount Gilboa in the north. Saul dies, right? We're given an eyewitness account. We're allowed to see Saul uh, get wounded and then fall on his own sword and kill himself. And that's kind of how the first book of Samuel ends. And then we come to the second book and we miss, we're not reading the first 10 verses, but what happens here is a guy shows up. He comes down south to Ziklag, where David is, and he tells David, hey, uh, I was there, I killed Saul, and here's his crown and his armband. And that's a problem, because we don't think he did kill him. So that leads us to right this point. David hears that Saul has been killed, and here is where we pick up. It's 2 Samuel verse, chapter 1, verses 11 to 27. Then David took hold of his clothes and tore them, and so did all the men who were with him. And they mourned and wept and fasted until evening for Saul and for Jonathan, his son, and for the people of the Lord and for the house of Israel, because they had fallen by the sword. And David said to the young man who told him, where did you come from? And he answered, I am a son of a sojourner, an an Amalekite. David said to him, how is it you were not afraid to put put out your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? Then David called one of the young men and said, go execute him. And he struck him down so that he died. And David said to him, Your blood be on your head, for your own mouth has testified against you, saying, I have killed the Lord's anointed. And David lamented with his lamentation over Saul and Jonathan his son. And he said it should be taught to the people of Judah. Behold, it is written in the book of Jashar. He said, Your glory, O Israel, is slain on your high places. How the mighty have fallen. Tell it not in Gath, publish it not in the streets of Ashkelon, lest the daughters of the Philistines rejoice, lest the daughters of the uncircumcised exult. You, mountains of Gilboa, let there be no dew or rain upon you, nor fields of, of offerings. For there, for there the shield of the mighty was defiled, the shield of Saul not anointed with oil. From the blood of the slain, from the fat of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan turned not back, and the sword of Saul returned not empty. Saul and Jonathan, beloved and lovely, In life and in death, they were not divided. They were swifter than eagles. They were stronger than lions. You, daughters of Israel, weep over Saul, who clothed you you luxuriously in scarlet, who put ornaments of gold on your apparel. How the mighty have fallen in the midst of the battle. Jonathan lies slain on your high places. I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. Very pleasant have you been to me. Your love to me was extraordinary, surpassing the love of of women. How the mighty have fallen, and the weapons of war perished. So, it's an incredible story. And here we have, not by accident again, the first book of Samuel begins with a lament. Hannah, remember? Hannah's lamenting. So it's not surprising that the second book of Samuel starts with a lament. This time it's David lamenting the loss of his best friend, Jonathan, but also of his enemy, surprisingly. So as we look at this here, this passage, we learn something. That lament is something that is so important to Israel that it makes up the bulk of the Psalms. It makes up so much of the Old Testament. And yet it's also something that we as a church have not done very well. Not just Redeemer, but capital C Church. 
we don't re really do a great job of lamenting, but it is a very important thing. So, it's good that we stop here for a moment and consider what is going on. What is this lament about? What can it teach us about weeping and about crying and about mourning? So we're going to see three things. We're going to see that this lament shows us a way to see, a way to share, and a way to joy. Okay? See, share, and joy. So let's begin with see. So we mentioned, uh, there's no way to put it, this, this messenger who comes from, from this Amalekite, he's a liar. People often ask, well, how can these, there's two different stories, right? One says Saul killed himself, and then a few verses later, this man comes, because remember, the two books of Samuel were one book, once upon a time. And just a few verses later, the Amalekite comes and says, no, I killed him. Who's telling the truth? Well, it's very obvious. We know, we were sitting there reading while Saul said he committed suicide. The Amalekite, it's, his story's actually fraught with problems. First, he says he fell upon, you know, he stumbled upon the battlefield. In the ancient world, you knew when there was a battle in a field near you. And you weren't walking your dog and being like, oh, a war. It just doesn't happen. What happens is, after a war, you go to the field and you start to, be, it's a scavenging event. And you start pulling the armor and the, and the jewelry off the dead soldiers. You're trying to make some hay for yourself. It seems like this guy did that. He goes to the battlefield, he's looking, and it was brutal. They would cut off fingers when the, so they got too swollen for rings to keep the ring. They would knock teeth out of their mouths that were gold. It was brutal. He obviously has gone to the battlefield, found Saul dead, taken the crown and the armband that were symbols of the king, and decided, I'm going to bring him to David, because David was just fighting the Amalekites. I'm going to take him to David, and maybe I can get some favor here. If I go to David and say, I've killed your enemy, and bring him the crown, boy, maybe it's my, maybe it's my ticket. So he presents this to David, and of course things don't go well at all. He is expecting David to respond like most people of his generation would have. There's a, a king, a Babylonian king, or a Syrian king, sorry, named uh, Esser Hayden, and he, he ruled in the 7th century, and he left us some, some of his own writings. And one of the things he leaves us is this example, when he was a young prince, and he was going to become the king of Assyria, he named his, he said, he, I'm going to be the king, but two of his older brothers decided, no, we want to be king. So they rise to fight against Esser Hayden. Esser Hayden then leaves this inscription for us, where he says... Woe, and I rent my princely robe and began to lament loudly. So he does what David does. The only difference is, Esther Hayden doesn't end lamenting and keep lamenting. He chases his brothers into exile and kills all their family. He was happy to take the throne. So this Amalekite was probably thinking, surely this is the kind of person David's going to be. Wouldn't, who wouldn't want his enemy dead? David's been running from him. So he goes and he presents this, this offering to him, and David responds very differently. And he mourns, but why does he mourn? And the reason is that he allows suffering to change his perspective. And you know this is what David is doing because if you, pay, if you pay close attention to the first chapter, you see the way David refers to Saul changes. Up until the point, when he first speaks to the Amalekite, David says, how do you know that Saul is dead? How do you know that Saul is dead? But the moment he hears that the man killed him, David no longer calls him Saul. He says, did you not worry about killing the Lord's anointed? So, the moment he hears he's been killed, all of a sudden David doesn't see it as an opportunity to gloat and to say, finally, finally the crown's mine. Now I can rest. He could have, and we probably would have felt justified if he did. 
but he chooses not to. Instead, he mourns, and the reason is he refuses to see this as the death of an enemy and instead sees it, sees it as the death of God's chosen one. He knows that in 1 Samuel 9, when Israel was crying out for a king that would save them from the other nations and help them, it was Saul who was anointed, which means chosen one, Messiah. Saul was the one who was chosen. So this isn't just a loose thing to kill this. This is God's hope for Israel that has been extinguished. So David changes and he sees things from a completely different perspective. I love that it says he lamented with his lamentation. You see, David allows the sorrow to change his perspective. You see, a lamentation in the ancient world wasn't just weeping. It wasn't just an outpouring of emotion. It was systematic. So you'll notice in the, in the, in the passages, it says that he hears about this and he and his men mourn until dinner time. They don't eat, they, they, don't fa they fast. And then he comes out with a song. It's like he spent that time weeping and emotion just pouring out of him, but in that time he's writing something formal. And then he comes and he laments with his lamentation. The word lamentation means funeral song. So he has a formal song that he pours out. And into this song, if you look at how he describes Saul, we'll talk about Jonathan later, when he, how he describes Saul, you see he's allowed the suffering to change his perspective. Rather than being a chance for gloating, it's a chance for mourning. So he refers to David... First, he says that, I mean, it's an interesting passage in, in verse 21. For the shield of the mighty was defiled. The shield of Saul was not anointed with oil. Now, notice he says defiled. What can be defiled? Holy things are defiled. He is thinking about Saul and saying it's not just a man. This is one God has chosen. So when he is killed, it's not just death. Something has been defiled. The image of God has been marred in him. So he sees it as something weighty. That's, imagine if we saw our enemies that way. Yes, we don't like them. Yes, they make our lives hard. But the image of God is on them. And this perspective of David allows him to change it. Look at the word, not anointed with oil. See, in the old days, you had a shield, and you'd cover it with leather. And then you would oil it so it didn't crack, and it would be strong against blows or against arrows. But it's actually quite sad. It's not anointed with oil because he never came back from the battle to, re, to reapply the oil. So it's a, this extinguishing of this holy life that has been let go is one, is one thing he notices. Another thing he says is he's brave. He dies defending Israel, and he does. If, if we're to see the chronology right, Saul's an old man here. He's pretty old, and he's at war. We can say many things about Saul, but he fought. He fought for his people. And David isn't just eulogizing like we do. Sometimes we go to a scoundrel's funeral, but we say nice things because we just want to say, let's just get it over with, let's not offend anybody, and just bury them and it's over. Right? Sorry, you know you've heard them. <laughs> and we do that sometimes. This is not what's happening. It's not simply, because what we're seeing here is an extension of what David has been doing throughout the entire first book of Samuel. Respecting Saul is something more than just flesh and bone but seeing him as God sees him instead. So he's brave. He also is beloved. Notice it says that he is beloved, but Jonathan is lovely. We'll talk about that in a minute. But the king is beloved. If, he, if we're to believe the numbers, and there's some debate about how long Saul ruled, but if he ruled 42 years, which is the high number people take, that means most people in Israel would not have known a time when they didn't have Saul as king. Is anyone here? I won't ask you to raise your hand. I can tell by your hair color. Were you alive when JFK died, November 22nd, 1963? Okay. Do you remember what that did to America and to the whole world? 
Losing a national leader is jarring because that's not supposed to happen. And it automatically sets off an insecurity in us. What next? What about the future? More so in the old days when we didn't have democracy and systems that had ways to replace leaders. So there's this insecurity, and David is calling everybody to see this. Saul was beloved. Saul also brought unity and prosperity. Verse 24, look what he says to the women. Weep over Saul who clothed you in luxurious, uh, luxuriously in scarlet, who put ornaments of gold on your apparel. So he may not have driven out the Philistines entirely, but there was wealth. There was unity. Israel was still a nation. There was never a coup to put David on the throne. Saul was still very popular. And if you don't believe it, watch what the next number of years do in David's reign. He's not overwhelmingly voted in by any stretch. Saul was beloved. He brought prosperity. There's many wonderful things here, but the only reason David points them out is because he lets sorrow change his perspective. When COVID comes, and COVID is just top of mind, I say this often to people. Have you ever noticed in the Old Testament, whenever something befalls Israel, it's always God who says, who takes full credit for it. He doesn't say it was leaked from a spot in China or it's a government conspiracy. God says, I'm bringing you Babylon. I'm bringing you Assyria. Don't blame the governments. I am sovereign. In COVID, I have a lot of time of people talking about conspiracies, and I don't want to knock them. Listen, the world does conspire. It's in the Psalms. Why does the world conspire against the Lord and his anointed? So it's there. But when trial comes, we ought to first and foremost, as God's people, say, what is God saying to us? He brings it to the church. We are the ones who are supposed to look behind the curtain and say, what is, why is he allowing it? What is it that we have to do? You never see people responding to Amos or Jeremiah or, or Ezekiel or anybody saying, oh, there's a conspiracy in the governments. No, they weep, they mourn, they lament. We have not lamented. We have, I don't know if we've stood before God as a Christian world in Canada, certainly, and said, why? Don't blame Trudeau. Don't blame COVID. The Lord is sovereign. He is the one we take our beef to, first and foremost. And that's what, we, what David does, what a lament is. Okay, it's a way to see. So we allow it to change our perspective and see things from God's perspective and not from the media's, not from our own even, from God's perspective. The next one I think is more intriguing is a way to share. Lament shows us how to share. So look at how David makes it a corporate event. The first thing in verse 18, he said it should be taught to the people of Judah. So it should be the tribe should learn this lament. Then he says, your glory, O Israel, is slain. So he's calling Israel. So he's got the nation, he's got the tribes. He then tells the daughters of Israel, weep over Saul. So he is now calling everybody to come in and lament with him. Lament and mourning is a corporate event in Israel and in Christianity, it should be. So they're all called to reflect on reality because let's face it, everybody in Israel had a reason to mourn. Most of them would have lost a son. Many of them would have lost people in their village or friends or something. Now, and if not, they, if they didn't lose any of those, they definitely lost a king. So now they're worrying, well, what's going to happen? Remember, they just lost a king and they've lost the war to the Philistines, which means they're prime for the picking. If I'm the Philistines, I swoop in right away and get them while they're, un- while they're confused. That's what I would do. There's a reason to mourn, and David calls the entire nation in to mourn with him. Now, what he is doing, quite literally, is he is asking the nation to sit shiva with him. You ever heard that term, shiva? Right? It's a Jewish mourning ceremony. And it's Shiva, Shiva just means seven. 
Because for seven days, you would come around somebody who's weeping and mourning. You see it in the book of Job. And you would mourn with them. But here's some of the rules. I know the three-letter word on the bottom there shows up. Sorry, children. But, but it's important. When you sit shiva with somebody who is mourning, when David calls people, he's calling them to come and sit with him. And everybody should mourn, the whole nation. And this is some of the rules. You're to grieve for seven days. You don't leave the house except for synagogue. Nothing else. Nothing. You're not allowed to do any work or business. There's no shaving or getting a haircut. No bathing. No festivities of any type. Certainly no intimacy. Um, there's no reading except from the book of Job, Lamentations, and parts of Jeremiah. Other books of Lamentation. There's, you have to cover all the mirrors in your home. And you have to then wear no leather shoes. And you think, boy, is this being a little legalistic? Stop saying legalistic. It's not legalistic. There's a purpose behind what they're doing. What they're doing is saying, when you mourn, you mourn. You don't have a mirror because they're afraid. Don't worry about what you look like. Because, you know, you're going to feel like, oh, I haven't shaved in a while. My hair's oy, greasy. They're saying, no, nothing should distract you from weeping with your friends. Nothing. And leather shoes is a luxury, they would say. Of course, now, I don't know if there's anything made of leather now. I don't know what's the equivalent today. But there's this whole idea of mourning. See, when you mourn, you want to get out of it as quickly as you can. Israel and the Bible says, no. Mourning and lamentation isn't something you're supposed to run from, but you're supposed to rest in. You have to sit in it for a, for a time. And they prescribe seven days, the Bible. I mean, read the book of Job. And it's an important thing because this is why I call the sermon a time to mourn. Um, one of the things I've seen, and I'm not knocking it, but I am a little questioning it, is why we call funerals celebrations of life. That's an un-Jewish idea. Now, I know the idea. You come and you celebrate the person's life. David celebrates Saul's life, but only so that he can mourn the loss of it. It's never to make it feel more jovial because that is a denial of what you're actually feeling. So, and this is not just Israel. I mean, our modern science has proven we need to lament. And so, I'm not knocking for you to a celebration of life, but there is a moment you must mourn. You have to. It's part of what we're called to do. And if you don't believe it, Look at what Jesus does at the tomb of Lazarus in John 11. He's up there. He knows the story. He has come to visit uh, Martha and Mary because their brother Lazarus has died, and Jesus shows up. And he doesn't come and say, you know what we say, we're, we're pretty bad as human beings sometimes. People, there's a death, and we say things like, oh, you know, it was just his time. God needed another angel. Or, um, oh, he had a good life, though. Lived a long, you know, a lot of years. Good life. Jesus offers none of that. Instead, what do we see? Deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. He said, actually, you know what? I'm going to go even further. So I'll read just ahead of that in verse 33. When Jesus saw her weeping, Mary, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, people sitting Shiva with her, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. And Jesus wept. Now, Jesus doesn't offer apologetics. Jesus could have just raised him and ended the lament. He could have stopped it. He doesn't. Instead, he enters into the lament with them. He doesn't, he could have just stopped it and said, like, if it's me and I'm showing up and everybody here is crying because someone has died, I can't wait to raise that guy. I can't wait to end the crying. I just want to say, don't, stop crying. Wait, till you, wait, just wait. Wait to see what I'm going to do. But I am not the Lord, thankfully. 
He instead, he doesn't need to be asked to come and sit Shiva. He sees it and he automatically enters into your suffering with you. He didn't have to. And I think we have to learn from this idea that Jesus doesn't celebrate, uh, doesn't celebrate Lazarus's life. And I'm not, I don't want to pick on the celebrations of life too much. But it's a time to simply mourn. He weeps with them. He can't seem to see you and I weeping without weeping with us. So, then, I think we are then called to do something similar. You see, if we don't mourn, you know what happens? The anger that we feel, the frustration we feel, comes out in protests, in social media, in gossip, in division, in anger. Make no mistake, you will mourn. You will lament. Only difference is you'll turn it on one another. You'll say, this person's not being vaccinated. Can you believe it? They have some nerve. This person doesn't want to wear a mask. Can you believe it? Or this person wants to wear a mask. This person wants to be vaccinated. Can you believe it? Can you believe the government's taking away our rules? Can you believe it? You see, if we don't mourn, if we don't sit in front of God and say, why? Why are you letting this happen? Why are you letting us lose rights if that's what's happening? Why are you letting this, well, what's going on? Why are you letting the church capitulate if that's the direction you want to go? Take these things to God first because it's going to come out and it is coming out against one another, not just in Redeemer. The whole, have you been online? We're just taking it out on one another because we haven't learned how to mourn. You see, we have told, in the church especially, we have taken lament out of the services, right? We have a blue Christmas service maybe. We may have a commemorative service for people who have passed away. But because lament isn't part of the rhythm of the Christian life anymore, where it clearly was, because if they're reading the Psalms in worship, they're lamenting regularly. Because it isn't now, what has happened is this. You still have reason to lament. You still have reason to mourn. You still struggle. You still are angry. But we, and I blame me, I blame the church, we have taken away the vocabulary for lament. So you still feel it, but you don't know how to express it. So of course it's going to come out in frustration and anger. Something needs to happen where we recapture, not to make church a somber place, but to recapture godly lament. This opportunity where it's okay to come to church and be broken. When Christ wanted to show that he was real, you may have heard me say this before, to Thomas, who's doubting, he doesn't say, look at my perfect body. He says, look at my wounds. He doesn't pretend he's perfect. And we, boy, we do. We're all guilty of it. So I think it's something here we have to regain about lament. So, Lamenting gives us an opportunity to see things differently, to share with one another's burdens. And by the way, if you're feeling like, hey, my life's pretty good, which, that's fair. Sometimes we're in good seasons where things, it's like, I don't have anything to lament. All the more reason to come alongside those who are and sit shiva with them and just let them lament and be with them and don't try to fix it like Job's friends. Just listen. Let them cry out. So, next thing is the way to joy. You see, because sitting shiva is not an end. It, is a, it instigates and initiates a process of reintegrating the bereaved person into life again. Shiva is meant to be seven days that doesn't just let you complain, but moves you back into worship, back into the life of the community again. And you know what's a good example of it? And um, it's, it's a book. It's this little kid's book. It's a board book, actually. Um, who's read this one of their kids? We're going on a bear hunt? Yeah, it's an awesome book. So just so you're aware, this has been understood by counselors for a long time to be a book about trauma and grief. Because what you and I do, okay, I'll tell you the story in case you don't know it. It's about a, little, a, young, a small family who decides they're going on a bear hunt. That's a bad idea, by the way. Come on, kids, let's go hunt for, for bears. I don't understand how we let that one get through the publishers, but okay. So 
They're going on a bear hunt. And as they're going on the bear hunt, they encounter obstacles. There's mud and a forest and wind and a river. And when they get there, they say something iconic. They say, I can't go over it, can't go under it, I have to go through it. And counselors say, this is a great example of what we do with grief and lament and anger and frustration. We do anything we can to avoid it. I'll go under it, I'll repress it, I'll do anything I can, anything but go through it. And yet, this is exactly what the Bible tells us continually to do. And this is what David does. When David invites us in and he says, oh, Israel, mourn, Jonathan, slain. Or he doesn't say, well, he he does say Jonathan. He says, "Uh, your glory slain on the high places. He's inviting us in to mourn not just the king who was beloved because he's the king, but to also mourn the lovely one. Jonathan wasn't loved because he had a title. He was loved because he was lovely. Something about Jonathan was wonderful. And he calls us in to lament this, and he wants us to go through this process. And if you look, I love the language here. Look at verses 19 and verse 25. I think I'll put them, did I put them up on the screen? Look, these are 19 and 25. Your glory, O Israel, is slain on your high places. And then in 25, Jonathan lies slain on your high places. David is saying that Jonathan is the glory of Israel. Now, he's not being sacrilegious here. Remember, it's a funeral thing. But what he is essentially saying is Jonathan was the best of us. He was the best. Your glory. This is what a king should be like, and he lies slain on your high places. You know, I don't know if you've understood, the word high places is almost exclusively used in the Old Testament to refer to where the pagans had their shrines. You'll notice this as well if you come to the Old Testament class. When you go through books of kings, you find that the kings that do well are the ones who remove the high places. So, interesting that David would say that Jonathan is slain on a spot where idols are sacrificed to. But he's starting to see the imagery. What he's saying is, Israel, you have these high places, and Jonathan is dead, and so is Saul, because he has been sacrificed on the altar of idols, war, sin, lies. He's been killed, and he must mourn, and he wants us to bring into it, bring us into this lament. And you and I, as Christians, cannot think about lamenting without thinking about the cross. We shouldn't be able to anyway. And there's no shame about that, okay? When you've peeked at the end of a book, it's impossible to pretend like you haven't. You never should mourn the same anymore. And here's where I want to introduce you to a word that you may not have heard, but it was, to- it was coined by a man named J.R.R. Tolkien. And the word is called eucatastrophe. It literally means good catastrophe. And Tolkien brilliantly says, what makes a really good story is a eucatastrophe. You see, the best stories will weave you and wind you through despair. And you're going to feel like there's nothing, there's no hope but death. It's all lament, lament, lament. But then the best story has a turn. And all of a sudden, the eucatastrophe comes, something that turns your despair into joy. And it comes so sharply that it actually brings you tears of joy because it seemed so hopeless. But now there is hope. But it's far more than that, he says. Let me use an example so you understand it with a very simple story most of us know, Little Red Riding Hood. So Little Red Riding Hood, I assume you know the story, but I'm going to use the Brothers Grimm version, so it's a little more grisly. So what happens is Little Red has this beautiful red hood. She wears it all the time, and she is told by her mother to go see her sick grandmother and bring her some food and wine. That's what you do. You bring, get, get them liquored up. You know? uh, let's make her last moments. You know. Anyway, so she's told to bring her wine and, and food. And as she is going she is stalked by a wolf. And the wolf is 
of trying to figure out, I mean, he's a classic stalker. He's just trying to figure out, where are you going? Where are you alone? That kind of thing. And he runs ahead of her and goes to his, her grandmother's house, eats the grandmother, and then he dresses up in the grandmother's clothes, you know the story, and he sits waiting for Riding Hood, Little Red. Little Red then shows up and she asks the questions, oh my, how what big ears you have. Bugs Bunny made it famous. And he asks all these questions, she asks all these questions, but it doesn't stop her from being eaten up. Now, at this point in the story, you should feel despair. Okay, it's a kid's story, but if you're into it, you start to feel despair because people don't normally come back from the stomach of a wolf. So there's no hope, there's nothing. But then we find there's a huntsman passing by and he hears some odd snoring in the cabin. So he goes and he says, scoundrel, I found you at last. And he kills the wolf, guts him, and pulls out the two women somehow alive. Okay. Hooray, you catastrophe. Yes. So, so now, the reason that that is a you catastrophe is twofold, because there's actually two things happening, says Tolkien. And this is why it's important about Christian lament. He says, on the surface level, all you see is despair, like death, death. You're hoping Little Red is going to come to her senses. doesn't happen. And then on one sense, you turn the page and you rejoice because the, the huntsman has come. But here is the great glory, says Tolkien. The great glory of a catastrophe isn't that the man comes and saves Little Red. It's that when you start to think about his salvation, that he came and saved her, you realize that it was inevitable. Because while you have your eyes fixed on Little Red, what you don't see is all along, the huntsman has been on his way. He's been walking from home, stopping here, going there, having lunch, so that it was time, so he would come at the right time to save her. In which case, he realized that the, that the salvation was inevitable. It was always coming. And what the cross allows you to do is in the midst of your suffering, you can weep and enter into it completely because you know it's not the final word, because you know that while you are weeping, Christ is like the huntsman, but much better. He's not going to, well, maybe he will gut, I don't know. Um, but he's coming, he's coming, and it's inevitable. Just like now you know it's inevitable that the huntsman will save little red, Christ will save and redeem us from everything that bothers us, Revelation 21, 22. And as a result, you and I, like Jonathan, or like David, can enter into this morning and weep and mourn entirely, but we can do it patiently, li living with faith through the mourning. It may last longer than you want, it may be uncomfortable, but we do it knowing that he's coming, and it's inevitable. The you catastrophe has happened. It happened at the cross, and now we're just awaiting its fulfillment in coming. In the depths of our weeping, God reminds us of David's lament, that our glory, Jesus, was slain on the high place of Calvary for our sake. Like Saul, Jesus was chosen to save Israel, but like Jonathan, he was altogether lovely. And because he came and was slain, the anointed one being defiled for our sake, you and I can stand before God as undefiled. It's incredible. All because of this great catastrophe at the cross. And so when we see laments in the Old Testament, don't run by them. Even if you think life is good, I have no reason to lament, you're wrong. Even if your life is perfect, look at our world. We have much to lament. I don't know if we spent enough time praying for our world as much as we spent time criticizing our world. And that's, I'm picking on me here as well. I'm just as guilty as all of you. We need to become this church that laments. And if they beat us through it and we suffer through the lament, you can't lose, don't you see? You can't lose. The you catastrophe's happened. He's coming. It's fixed. It's done. We, of all people on the planet, should be the ones who are most patient in trial, not the ones picketing and marching immediately not saying we should have our rights trampled, 
but we need to be shrewd. Let us lament, because it's only by lamenting that we then come through to the joy. We have to take that time to do it. And thankfully, because of Christ, we can do it. Let's pray.